Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 2nd of October 2020. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robert Barwick. Welcome, Robert. Thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, bail-in plotters scripting crisis management. How long till our accounts are robbed? And Morrison's mealy-mouthed manufacturing miss. So, firstly today, bail-in plotters, scripting crisis management. How long till our accounts are robbed? So, uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison over recent weeks has announced a raft of new um, financial initiatives regarding banks and trying to propel credit into the economy, um, none of which will work. But uh, what we can reveal is that they are part of the script put together by the Financial Stability Board, which is run out of the Bank for International Settlements, the Central Bank for Central Banks based in Basel, Switzerland. Now, those initiatives that Morrisons are putting forward include a relaxation of lending standards uh, that banks have to abide by to put out new mortgages, which basically turns back the clock to pre um, financial Royal Commission times, a term funding facility which has been described as a gift to the big banks, pumping more money into the banks for lending, and also talk in the recent week about uh, crafting a new digital economy, increasing the interface between private business and government agencies. And even today I'll add to that list, uh, there's talk about uh, in Prime Minister and Cabinet establishing a new deregulation task force to relax a whole lot of other standards. Now, the FSB script, uh, which we'll put up on the screen, uh, this is something they've been discussing for a couple of months now, and they're suggesting that during this period of financial crisis, uh, some of their regular standards should be relaxed for the time being. So they're promoting, number one, more information sharing across their member banks, which are central banks across the world, looser lending standards, as Morrison's picked up on, uh, and things like guaranteeing, uh, putting government guarantees behind lending, reduced liquidity buffers, increased quantitative easing and other special funding facilities, as we see with the term funding facility of Morrison, and modified leverage ratios. Now, the point that we want to make is if we follow this script, it's actually going to guarantee that we end up having to have our banks bailed in because they're going to fail. Yeah, what they're doing is doubling down on all the structural problems that are in the banks already. And if you just, just look at it in the Australian context, they're telling that they've given, they've given all this money to the banks for extra lending, massive increase in money for the banks from the Reserve Bank this year. Um, but now they're telling the banks drop your lending standards and plough it into the housing bubble, right? It's the only trick they've got. Yeah. Well, that, that debt, so this is what, what, what happens, Elisa, is that the government's desperately trying to achieve is by increasing bank lending for housing, um, because the banks love lending for housing, it creates a what's called a wealth effect where those loans get you know funding all sorts of purchases of things and that flows to the economy and that can get the businesses going and, and all that kind of stuff, right? When in reality, because those loans are borrowed just against housing in a bubble that are already overpriced, what you're really creating is debt 
yeah, the money will circulate, but it starts off as unproductive debt, mm. right? And that debt is what's crushing Australia already and is what's crushing the banks. We've got the second highest household debt in the world. We've got a massive overseas um, debt exposure. And that doesn't get solved by any of this, right? And so because that's, because that's the economy the banks are exposed to, that, that was already their biggest vulnerability to, to a collapse. And if that collapse happens, that's when the government, um, uh, by, the, by the requirements of the same FSB, right, is told, okay, there's a resolution regime here that includes bail-ins. Mm. And that's, what, that's what's being set up, where there's a much... We'll talk about it in a minute, but there's yeah. a much better way to approach the needs of the economy than this. Yeah, the government's approach essentially hinges on sustaining a speculative property bubble, which is yeah. ridiculous. Um, now, as I mentioned, the number one thing on the FSB, FSB's list, though, of policy prescriptions is information sharing, which is very interesting. And uh, they state in their documents that they have been coordinating policy globally very closely through conducting regular calls between senior committees and the head of our Reserve Bank, Philip Lowe, is on one of those FSB committees. So they discuss the need for monitoring and sharing information globally in real time. This is financial surveillance. And you can hear um, various financial analysts on the television and in the papers lately here in Australia discussing the fact that high-frequency data provided from the banks on consumer and business spending habits has been essential to the government dealing with this crisis. And, yeah, they've dealt with it so well. Uh, <laughs> um, but banks actually started sharing, and they, they did this voluntarily, they started sharing data with the government back in April as the coronavirus crisis started to hit. That was an informal arrangement. But in August, a major deal was signed between the big banks and the Australian Bureau of Statistics to make that a formal information sharing arrangement. And look at the other levels of information sharing that are going on, including with intelligence agencies. APRA, as early uh, at the beginning of 2020, had been closely working with the world's top intelligence agencies and also with the Australian Signals Directorate and ASIO under part of the pretext of it was to prevent cyber attacks in finance and banking. Of course, we've started to expand our notion of um, crucial or vital infrastructure, critical infrastructure to the entire banking sector. In September, this was extended where the Australian Consumer Competition Council signed a memorandum of an understanding with five eyes agencies, their counterparts across the world, to share confidential information on the same basis to protect that financial uh, and banking critical infrastructure. Uh, now, the other place, of course, that we saw this kind of financial surveillance was with the attempted cash ban, which fortunately is failing, but you've got a bit of an update on that too, Robbie? Yeah, because next Wednesday in the Parliament, the, the Senate will vote on the government's cashless welfare card, the in-due cashless welfare card, to extend the trials that are, that are going on. And this is actually part of the same agenda. Right? People have made, seemingly um, made exceptions for it all because oh, they're welfare recipients on taxpayers' money, um, like that makes it all right. No. The, first of all, there's a corrupt element here. The injury company gets paid $10,000 per card to administer the thing. Why don't you give the $10,000 to the poor people on welfare? That would improve the economy if, if you want a stimulus. But um, more fundamentally, though, 
It's a trial. It starts off at welfare recipients, but it's already involving disability payment um, recipients, carers, pension recipients, and ultimately it's going to go to aged care pensions. Your grandma's next, right? She won't be able to use cash. She'll have to use a card. And the people behind this, uh, we've been exposing with the cash ban, this, you know, the, the, the people at KPMG that helped craft this, um, this whole system the Reserve Bank set up called the New Payments Platform, they said we want to move people out of cash into banks so we can monitor and measure their activities, right? So this is, this is a financial surveillance system. Part of the, the economic excuse, Elisa, is premised on this idea that, oh, we need to know the consumption behaviour of consumers, mm. right? Because then we can manipulate those through advertising and all kinds mm -hmm. of targeted stuff to get the outcomes we want. That's not how you run an economy. If you need something done, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with the government actually st starting its own investment and making sure it gets done. Right, rather than manipulating, sending price signals to the consumer to manipulate them to achieve it through the so-called um, uh, consumption decisions, right? It's silly and it's, it's actually, to it ha the net effect is totalitarian mm. and that's why we're trying to fight that. Um, and if you're, if, you're in, if you're supporting our campaign against this creeping cashlessness, call the senators before next Wednesday's vote to tell them to vote that down. We've got to keep reminding this government we do not want to go down this cashless path. Mm. Now, after this break, we're going to discuss another aspect that reveals this bail-in agenda as a scam. Welcome back to the Citizens Report. We're discussing how the people that invented bail-in are currently running Australia's crisis response. Now, one of the inventors of bail-in, uh, one of three figures, uh, has actually just come out um, expressing scepticism in the transition to bail-in that the, the BIS and FSB are not, you know, going full hog with this. They're not making it work. He's worried the authorities don't have the balls, Elisa, <laughs> yeah. to, to steal your money. <laughs> yes, that's right. And this is uh, a guy by the name of Paul Tucker or Sir Paul Tucker, uh, the ex-Deputy Governor for Financial Stability of the Bank of England and ex-head of the Bank for International Settlements Committee on Payment and Settlement Systems. He um, was identified by the... Well, there, there, were two, there were two speculators, derivative salesmen, who, you wouldn't be surprised, came up with the idea of bail-in. Because mm. they thought if, if, if Lehman Brothers had been able to be bailed in and take its creditors' money, then it wouldn't have set off this derivatives um, chain reaction meltdown that caused the global financial crisis. So they came up with it, but three people in existing government positions really made it a policy, and they credited Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, this gentleman, Paul Tucker, and an FDIC official in the United States named Jim Wigand. And Paul Tucker is one of the three parents of bail-in, and he's not happy that it's not growing up very mm. well. So there was a FSB workshop last month uh, to which Paul Tucker was invited to speak. Uh, the FSB may not have ended up being that happy with it. However, <laughs> um, yeah, what Paul Tucker said was rather interesting. He said that back in March when coronavirus really started hitting the United States, the bailouts that were done on a massive scale undermined the bail-in scheme and basically that, uh, well, he said, I think the market thinks you'll still blink really when it comes to it. In other words, you won't go the full hog, you'll just keep bailing out the banks. But we'll roll a little clip of a little bit of what he had to say. And I think March will have fortified people in this. I think it is hard to explain the scale and rapidity of the, um, 
of the market interventions by the major central banks. Actually, I excuse, I think the ECB is completely different, but from the from the Fed and the Bank of England and one or two others perhaps in, in March, unless they were worried about um, one or two funds or their funds failing and various names get mentioned around the market. I don't know whether that's true or not. And I think that until, I think that in financial stability, we need the equivalent of a Paul Walker moment um, in inflation. When, when will somebody be prepared um, as Paul was with inflation, as my predecessors were in 1866, um, to let things fail if they're not systemic and then support the rest of the, the market. And if there was support for non-systemic things in March, which I think plausibly there might have been, but I don't know that, um, then I think that what the cost of that will have been to reinforce market perceptions that if any of the really big institutions gets into trouble, then you would blink. And then he concluded his remarks quite interestingly by saying that policy makers talk about resolution, which is bailing, far too little. And I think it's inexplicable, he said, how little supervisors talk about it. Now, Elisa, what he's unhappy about is um, the fact that as bail-in has developed as a policy, so has the backlash, right? And in Europe, where not just Cyprus, but a lot of banks in Italy and Spain were bailed in and different versions of bail-in, massively unpopular, right? The, the, the Italian government is trying to find ways around EU law so it can avoid bail-ins because mm -hmm. it's incredibly unpopular. I mean, uh, duh, what do you think? You're going to steal people's money, hard-earned money, and, and think they're going to love you, yeah. right? Um, and, of course... That becomes a political factor. And in Australia, we are that political factor, right? We have made such a stink about bail-ins since it first happened in Cyprus in 2013. And we saw in this same FSB's report the next month saying bail-in legislation is in train in Australia. We were all over it for the last seven years, non-stop. Um, and that's the fight we're, we're doing now with uh, Malcolm Roberts' bill to get that, that whole thing um, clarified in Parliament. And because we made such a stink about it, and in fact we identified the fight we raised, waged in Australia is unprecedented anywhere in the world, maybe except for India, because most other places that have got bail-in laws, they were passed before the public had a clue, mm. right? That didn't happen here. And last year the IMF noted quite tellingly that the Australian government has taken a cautious public stance on bail-in. <laughs> That's exactly what Paul Tucker's complaining about. Exactly. Um, because... Uh, the government does not want to admit to what the truth is. Anyway, that's just a reminder. Um, two months to go before the bill that Malcolm Roberts put up to clarify the bail-in law is introduced, is, is debated in the Senate. Um, keep calling your senators, etc., because um, Paul Tucker is just evidence that they want, there's, you know, he's part of the system that absolutely wants bail-in. They want Australia to be aligned to it. We can stop it here by getting forcing the Senate to pass Malcolm mm. Roberts' bill. Now, there's more on that story you can read for background information in the latest Australian Alert Service, so contact us for a free copy if you haven't already. Uh, now, we'll be right back to talk about um, Scott Morrison's manufacturing plan. Welcome back to the Citizens Report. We're now turning to Morrison's mealy-mouthed manufacturing miss. So... Yesterday, Prime Minister Morrison announced a $1.5 billion spend over four years to ramp up manufacturing. Well, ramp up in his mm. mind. 
in his lunchbox. Um, yeah, he's, he's talking about ramping up with um, matchbox cars. <laughs> Um, so he identified areas in which Australia has a comparative or competitive advantage uh, such as resources and minerals, things like chemicals and plastics, food and beverages, medicines and medical products, recycling and clean energy, defence and space. And he actually explicitly said that we cannot and should not seek to reach global scale in large numbers of sectors, in other words just specialise in a handful. And that really ignores economic realities that we have to become a lot more self-sufficient in basically everything. So what should this plan actually look like, Robbie? Well, Elisa, it would be wrong to say Mr Morrison is bringing a knife to a gunfight. What he's doing is bringing a plastic knife to a nuclear exchange. <laughs> we're, in a, we're plunging into a depression, right? We're in, we're in this crisis because his party and the Labor Party over decades destroyed manufacturing. They turned us into a services economy, right? And it's, and it's the services, it's the coffee shops, it's the, all those sort of things that are going broke in this crisis. They're fine if you've got lots of luxury, but we didn't even really afford it because we've got a massive $1 trillion net foreign debt because we haven't been able to afford our lifestyle, because we stopped paying our way, we stopped making our own way, making things. We used to do 30% manufacturing in Australia, now we're down to six. And this is, we are, um, we're in danger of an Australian depression as part of a global depression. You've got to do something about that. Now he, earlier this year, he paid $130 billion to pay people to stay at home. Yet to address the, the post-crisis economic side of things, he's putting up what? Mm. 1.5 billion. Mm. So forget the, the constraints he puts on the particular ideas. A lot of those ideas are fine. There'd be a lot more out there. You don't have to control all the ideas like that. There'd be a lot more out there. The issue comes down to who's going to back this stuff. So a real plan would involve a National Development Bank. And because what a National Development Bank can do is do what he's doing. Let's just give him the, that much credit, but on, a much, on, the, on the scale that's required. Right? There's a lot of latent potential in the Australian economy, a lot of skills that are now lying fallow, um, a lot of innovation that never gets backed. And with a National Development Bank, you're not going to leave it. All these, as we discussed in the previous, the private banks, they just want to lend money to, to mortgages mm. and, and exploit those poor people. Right? You need a system where the government can have an institution that can say, we will back you. And let the people come with their ideas and get backing and look what happens. Well, look what will happen, right? A lot of things will happen. And the bank can also help do the international liaison and all those sort of things to create supply chains and whatever. Look at the, um, I urge people to look at the video of our Citizens Insight show a couple of weeks ago, Professor Lance Endersby we put up, where he, the late Professor Lance Endersby, who actually yesterday was the um, anniversary of his passing, bless his soul, we really appreciated mm. being able to work with Lance. He had this, this vision for integrated national development that would make not just Australia productive, but make Australia profitable. Because you've got always, we've got our own growing market of a growing population, but growing markets in Asia that we could be supplying, right, and making money, making profit, but it requires infrastructure and vision to start with, and only the government has the scale and the capacity to do that. And that's what a bank can help you do. And it doesn't have to cost a taxpayer a dime because these banks make money in the long run, right? That's what, that's what they should be doing. And this, by comparison, this is absolutely pathetic. So our, our policy of a national development bank that we're working on legislation for to go in Parliament is very important. 
Now, there was this is coming up, though, Elisa, in the parliament a lot. Mm. So a couple of days ago, there was a hearing on Wednesday. There was a hearing of the Senate inquiry that, or the, 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 um, the parliamentary inquiry we encourage people to make submissions to on diversifying trade and investment. There's a, a top economist at QUT, Dr Mark McGovern. He testified before that. We want to play a little bit of a clip because... He based his testimony around the fact that we need a National Development Bank. And so you'll hear George Christensen, the chairman, asking a question and then Dr. Mark McGovern's response. And I gather from you know, all that you're saying uh, that um, you are firmly of the view that a way that we should be looking at diversifying our market, our, 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 um, our trade, is actually uh, using more of what we send overseas ourselves in secondary processing. Uh, we've had a lot of submissions relating to that, a lot of um, submissions that uh, are calling for the establishment of uh, a national bank, national development bank. Uh, what sort of policies are you yep. recommending to us that uh, would lead to doing more at home, I guess? Yeah, well, I was actually just now talk, just previously talking about the investment side of the story, right? And the conditions have actually been quite unfavourable in this country and not necessarily in other countries because of the way we allowed interest rates and things to determine the fortunes of enterprises, simply because of time. So going back to the trade side, it's relatively easy but not very productive, um, let alone profitable, not to do further value-adding. And this goes back, if we look at agriculture, that most of our agricultural production is used in Australia. That's a long-term um, pattern, and the 22% or so that's exported is raw commodities. If we go to other areas where there's potential value-adding, we are actually quite good, when we want to, at turning ourselves to making better production processes and better products. But to do that, you've got a window of development You've got research in the universities, for example, which are funded at the moment through basically the government's budget. They would be much better off as public universities funded from a public bank with, without drawing on the, the government's budget. And in that case, we could actually set up a financial arrangement which suits the investment. We know we're going to have negative cash flow, even with a small business, but particularly with some of these long research projects. You have negative cash flow for a while, but... Over time, you get the returns. And the oh, game almost is to say we're careful about it. We pick what we think is reasonable. We accept, accept failures. And if you go back to the old Commonwealth Development Bank, its whole purpose was to take on the risky ones and by pooling risk appropriately, it was able to forego interest as due and things like this, but it knew the book would succeed you will lose some along the way. But if you set up your book properly, you can finance things that individually are risky, but collectively they will pay off. So I think the diversification is broad. We need to diversify the types of products we can export, pick where we can be winners. Now that exchange, Elise, is actually a very positive sign because you can see there George Christensen acknowledged that they got a lot of submissions, which we encourage people to make, calling for a National Development Bank, right? We have to win this argument now. It's very urgent. The economy depends on it. But, it's, you know, the economy is on our side in a sense, right? So, so stick with us as we fight this fight because we could actually achieve this here. 
Absolutely. Now, I also want to draw people's attention to the latest Citizens Insight show, which is available for you to watch on YouTube now. It's about China and how the means by which an enemy image has been fraudulently crafted vis-a-vis -vis China, preventing the kind of cooperation that to get this perspective to develop Australia would be very, very useful to have as a cooperative partner. So watch that. We've run out of time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Robert. Thanks, Lisa. Join us next week. Thank you.